of today's alternative hits. UmsoRadio.com. This is uh, Student Activist Hub Radio, uh, and I'm uh, your host, Kevin, with my co-host, Adam, uh, and we are back after a long hi- hiatus um, uh, for the uh, break, and we're happy to be back, and we've got a great show uh, prepared for you this week. Um, there's a new system in the studio, so we're just getting accustomed to that, and so hopefully we'll have everything up by the, the time that the break goes and, and all of that smoothly transitioning, but... Adam, um, we wanted to talk about some of the local events uh, that are going on in the Saint, in the Missouri political system, and so you know what what's well. First, actually, let's let's just talk about some of the the few national things that that might um, be affecting Missouri and and that just popped up and that we might want to comment on. Okay, um, well, so the the big sort of news this week, right, was the uh, State of the Union State address the Union, yeah. on uh, I think it was Tuesday, right? Yep. Um, and so it had the uh, uh, the traditional Republican response, and then the exciting part was the <laughs> yeah. Michelle Bachman uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> special Tea Party response as well. Um, so uh, let's see. So you said you you just you read the State of the Union. I read right? it. I, I did a, not watch it. You didn't get to watch it. I mean, I thought personally that President Obama did a pretty good job. I mean, obviously, I knew going into it he wasn't going to be as progressive as I want, you know, since, yeah. you know, he's trying to govern to towards to the, the center, center at this yeah. point. Um, but I thought he did a good job sort of throwing out things that both, uh, liberal people like myself and, uh, more fiscally conservative people would, would find interesting. So, you know, like, so he said he wanted to get rid of tax subsidies for the oil oh. companies. And, you know, of course that, uh, fired me up. Um, and, um, he also, but on you know, on the other end, he talked about some like sort of fiscal policies that the Republicans might might enjoy. So I don't know. I thought that was good. Um, and pretty pretty soon, just to give our listeners a heads up, we're going to be speaking to Sean from Fired Up Missouri. So. Yeah, he's a he's a great local uh, blogger or statewide blogger. Yes, he's not local to Missouri, but uh, local to St. Louis. But he covers all of Missouri. Um, and so you know, I yeah, I think that the State of the Union um, address. I did read over it um, and. You know, I thought that it it was, you know, one of the analysis that I saw is that it's a bit, it, it sort of opens up our um, eyes about the approach that uh, the president is going to take. Uh, it's a, going to be a very different approach from one from the sort of conservative presidents who oftentimes sort of dig in and stick to their principles. I think Obama is going to do a lot more to reach out um, to Republicans. And I think that the you know, one of the problems with that that we've learned is that, you know, a lot of the more Republican and Tea Party mentality has really pushed them away uh, from compromising, uh, you know, with anything that I think a Democrat has proposed. And I think Obama has been has been very good at trying to to compromise with the Republicans and they have not been responsive um, uh, on, on most of those occasions. No doubt. No doubt. Um, so. Um, the, the national political scene is pretty interesting. Um, we, uh, fortunately for us progressives, we, we do control the Senate and, yeah. uh, or Democrats control the Senate yeah. and the, the presidency. So we have a little bit of a buffer, but 
Um, the state of Missouri is a little bit different yeah. where there's a lot of sort of scary things coming down the road. And so we are uh, very lucky tonight to have a, a great local blogger, uh, or not local, but uh, I made the mistake. Missouri, yeah. thing that uh, Kevin said, a uh, great <laughs> Missouri blogger, uh, Sean, actually um, the winner of the best political blog from the Riverfront Times. Well, this congratulations. So, uh, Sean, uh, congratulations. Uh, how, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thanks for the Thanks for the introduction and for having me on. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thanks yeah. Thanks for, for coming, coming on. on. Um, yeah, absolutely. We wanted to, to start off by asking you about the priorities of the new state legislator that's come in. It's now Republican controlled. What are they looking to do, uh, you know, and, and what should progressives and, and, and the Missouri public be, be looking out for? Well, I think there's two tracks of priorities going on. There's the, the overarching priority, which is passing the budget. I mean, that's something they can't get around. Um, that's something that just has to be done um, by the time um, June 1st rolls around. So those budget negotiations um, are, gonna, are top priority for everyone, the, either legislators or activists in the public. Um, and then there's a second track of priorities, which are uh, right now and so far have been social um, red meat for, for their base. Um, it's things like um, overturning Proposition B, which was the Poppy Mill Cruelty Prevention Act, which passed in November. It's things like drug testing for um, participants in the in the temporary or in the TANF um, low income program for for women and children. Um, it's things like uh, um, next week they're they're, they're going to talk about right to work, uh, right to work for less, um, trying to undermine some basic um, rights for 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 workers to organize in the state. Uh-huh. So, so there's so those are all those. Those things are going on at the same time. And there's a third pack of priorities, which it isn't entirely clear, which is Rex Singfield's um, agenda. And I don't have a solid understanding day-to-day where he's in the legislature, um, where they stand on, on different pieces of, of, of his agenda, but um, his proposal to radically alter the state's tax structure um, is, is always floating out there. And it's not clear at this point whether the legislature is going to do anything about that or whether Singfield and his um, hired minions are going to put that on the ballot um, just through a, through the initiative petition process. Okay. And and for those listeners who, who might not be aware, Rex Singfield is um, a prominent benefactor, a conservative sort of libertarian, um, you know, donor, uh, you know, a billionaire to, to the political process. And, of course, uh, he was involved with Prop A in the last election campaign, um, you know that that unfortunately uh, did pass, and, and of course he he uh, is out and about uh, in this session. Um, what you know with the budgetary process? What are the as something that that needs to happen? Um, of course, and needs to be passed. You know, what's the fiscal condition of of the state of Missouri? Um, I understand. You know, of course, Illinois over the over the border is in a, in a, is in a pretty poor fiscal state, and and some people, especially on the conservative side, have tried to use that as an an excuse to try to sort of, you know, gut pensions for public employees, workers, uh, gut uh, funding for Medicaid programs. What is the uh, state of Missouri's finances, and how how is that impacting the budgetary process? Missouri's finances are, are in pretty poor shape as far as being able to maintain sufficient levels of funding for the programs that people have come to count on and depend on. Um, but it's it's really apples and oranges when you com- to compare 
Missouri to states like Illinois or okay. New Jersey or California or New York, they are facing ginormous uh, structural problems where they've not paid into pension systems as they should have. Um, Missouri is, it's, it's simply an issue of what are the hundreds of millions of dollars that aren't going to be spent next year that otherwise might have been spent. Um, and uh, the plan that was outlined by the governor a few weeks ago, um, there are a lot, some of the cuts are simply just not spending any more than, than happened last year, so trying to, uh, to just flatten funding. Um, but then there are, there are definitely going to be cuts and uh, programs that just can't, that aren't going to get their, their same level of funding. The thing that's going to come up first, and I think the is going to be the loudest section of the debate. It's going to be what happens with uh, with, with school funding and how um, money is moved between different funds, um, federal money, state monies, how that all gets uh, allocated to the individual school, school districts. And, and Sean, if, if I uh, remember correctly, it seemed like um, a lot of people, a lot of teachers and part, members of teachers' unions were really concerned um, before Nixon's uh, State of the State address. And it seemed like uh, maybe some of the things he said, they weren't quite as um, shocked as they, they might have been, right? It seemed like it, they his his State of the Union address seemed sort of better for education than some people were expecting. Is that is that how you I think that's it? accurate. And I, I think that um, it, I, I think that's an accurate read on, on what happened and the reaction. Um, several hundred million dollars of the cuts come from things that weren't allocated in the, the fiscal year that will end in the, in the next couple of months. So that's money that people had already adjusted to, to not having. Um, and then uh, the, the goal uh, for the coming fiscal year is for school districts to have the same amount of money that uh, in the fiscal year 2012 as they have in fiscal year 2011. There's some debate on how to make that happen because you've got federal rules and state rules all coming together and then a formula that's supposed to dictate how money's going to be allocated. Uh, but but the, the goal... I think shared across party lines is making sure that that the money that schools had this year they're going to have next year. Uh-huh. Um, well, since uh, since uh, Sean uh, is a as an expert at keeping up with um, a lot of the stuff going on in Jefferson City um, at his blog uh, fireduppmissouri.com, uh, well, not his blog, but he's the sort of resident uh, <laughs> blogger. blogger. I always kind of think of Fired Up as. Um, the Dread Pirate Roberts from uh, The Princess Bride, where they're sort of like this new, this new person who comes in every few years uh-huh. and strikes fear into the heart of uh, the right wing. But, um, anyways, uh, Sean, uh, maybe you could walk us through some of the things you mentioned at the beginning. So, so tell us a little more about um, Proposition B. So, there was a hearing in the Senate, um, and uh, people who supported Proposition B it, it won in a ballot initiative um, in November. Um, and people who supported it were pretty critical about some of the changes that were suggested. And then some of the um, opponents uh, who were, you know, pushing for changes, uh, they said, well, we, we had a bill, but it just makes a couple minor changes. What's your sense on how, how drastic the changes are that have, that have been proposed for Proposition B, the Puppy Mill uh, Cruelty Prevention Act? Well, there are several different proposals that are out there, and I don't have a good sense for what's going to make it out in the end. I just don't. And there are anything from completely repealing the, the law that was created in November to creating, you know, minor, relatively minor provisions um, to changing things like the number of dogs 
uh, the, the cap on the number of dogs for, for a facility. So there are different pieces of legislation out, out there. There's a lot of legislators who want credit for trying to take on the Humane Society and um, the alleged agenda that they have. Uh-huh. I mean, there's some pretty crazy rhetoric. But both the House and the Senate, there's a handful of bills in both chambers. They've all both both chambers have had a series of hearings at this point, and there was an enormous uh, public interest. I was in Judge City on Wednesday trying to just watch the hearing, and I couldn't even get in. There were there were, there were crowds overflowing in the halls. Um, so there's some there's some real interest for and, and engaged folks on both sides. Um, but I would say that the the folks who who worked hard to get uh, Proposition B passed in November, they really showed up and um, and made their their voices heard. This week, and I assume they'll continue to do so. Oh, just on uh, Prop B and sort of the changes, does Governor Nixon have a, a clear a position on on the proposals and attempts to change it? I don't know that he does. I mean, I think that um, one of his skills uh, is staying out of the squabble of the week in the city. Um, and I think on this issue, I don't know that he's indicated any sort of preference for for changing. Or altering probably at all. Uh, I think he's been pretty much solid on the issue of the last weeks. Okay. Okay. Um, so yeah, so that um, will definitely be kind of interesting, and and it's not, uh, unfortunately, uh, in my opinion, it's not completely unprecedented for the Missouri legislature to uh, completely disregard the the will of the Missouri voters. Is that right? Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. I mean, at the, like just in the last week, we've had hearings on. Proposition B on changing the the state's minimum wage law. Yeah. Uh, that that was a initiative petition that that passed strongly a couple of years ago. They're trying to change that to um, undo Missouri's stronger law. It's a pretty ironic thing coming from the same people who um, who beat the drum on the Tenth Amendment. They would now want to tie the state's minimum wage to the federal minimum wage so that Congress can have full control over Missouri's Missouri's laws. So there's a a little bit of irony there. Yeah. Um, the alternative energy. Um, standard that was passed uh, through Proposition C a couple years ago. That's um, currently undergoing some changes or uh, some regulatory regulatory um, finagling. So, yeah, there's, it is not at all an unprecedented move um, for for the legislature to overturn ballot initiatives because with the ballot issues that are enacted in the statute, because when those are on the ballot, they can make changes to the state constitution or to state statute. Um, the constitution is obviously harder to change which is why things that don't really have any business being in a constitution get added to the state constitution because they don't want um, the the politicians in Jeff City to, to overturn them. Right. Yeah. Um, well, maybe. Um, so uh, I think another thing you'd mentioned was um, the uh, the so-called fair tax by Sink, uh, Rex Sinkfeld. Um, mm-hmm. And so uh, maybe you could tell us it's a little bit of a complicated situation because it's kind of strange that um, so. St. Louis, for a couple years at least, has been fighting to get local control of the police department, which currently is controlled by um, the state. And uh, Rex, who we've talked about a lot, I think, on on this program, um, has sort of uh, uh, jumped into the fray and donated $300,000 to support um, local control. So that's kind of a positive thing. Um, But... Um, people like myself are kind of worried about whether this is some kind of exchange um, for people to sort of cooperate on something like the the um, so-called fair tax, or 
maybe a better way of describing it is the mega sales tax. But Sean, maybe Sean, can you say a little bit about what this proposal actually is? The 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 tax plan that Rex Sinkfeld wants for the state. Absolutely. Uh, the crown jewel in Rex Sinkfeld's plan for the state of Missouri is described as as this fair tax thing. That's what he and his supporters call it. Really, what it is in essence is the elimination of the state's income tax and corporate franchise taxes and replacing that revenue generation function with a a higher sales tax. Um, To achieve that, um, uh, Ron Paul types have been trying to to pass this kind of thing and talking about it in in kind of a pipe dream way for a few years. And it's been determined that the the tax rate for Missouri, the sales tax rate, would probably need to be between um, somewhere around 8% to just be revenue neutral, meaning that all of the revenue that would be lost if you got rid of the income tax or for franchise tax, to, to replace that, you'd have to set a statewide, statewide sales tax of around 8%, which is um, double the, the current sales tax rate, at least. Um, when, in reality, though, it's going to have to be even higher because there's going to be exemptions to that. Um, part of the philosophy is expanding the, the state uh, sales tax base. So things that aren't taxed right now, um, that don't have sales taxes right now, like legal services, accounting services, rent, all that is supposed to be thrown into the pool. It's this libertarian, just kind of fantasy thing. Um, Sinfield and his folks have steadfastly tried to say that the, the rate can be much lower than it really can be. And it's just it's pure, um, it's just garbage. So they have filed nine different initiative petitions right now with very different with varying bits of language about how the current tax structure would be eliminated um, and replaced with a, with, a, with a higher sales tax. Um, the legislature, there's also a chance the legislature could pass some version of that this year to put it on the ballot. Um, a couple of developments this week. Jim Moody, who was, used to be the budget director for former Governor Ashcroft and the commissioner at the Office of, Office of Administration for Ashcroft, so not exactly a, a pinko lefty. He came out with a um, an analysis on behalf of a of a coalition of folks who are opposing this, showing that the rate would have to be considerably high, up in the rates that we're talking about, you know, upwards of eight, nine, ten percent, especially as exemptions are created to what's taxed as a prebate, um, which is is added the prebate. Take another side step here. The, the prebate is this idea. This, Sales tax regime less regressive. Uh, it's gonna, um, so the idea is that low-income folks would get a check either quarterly or once a year to pay for the taxes that a person who's extremely poor what they would be paying in sales taxes. So it's this kind of gimmick to, to make it less evil and less awful than it is. Um, but once you get in, that just adds that it adds, adds cost. Another significant development I think this week is that Senate. President Pro Tem, Rob Mayer, um, he's a Republican from Dexter, and he was the choice of the very conservative senators to replace Kevin Angler as the as the top Republican in the Senate. He did an interview at uh, former Governor Bob Holden's Holden Forum series when he said that he didn't think that this proposal could make it to the legislature at least this year because there are still significant questions about how the state or how this tax would impact the state, and he on the same terms that everyone else is using, where the rate would have to be, you know, is going to get up to 9, 10, 11, 12 percent for the statewide sales tax rate. Um, and this is, again, the, the leading Republican in the Missouri State Senate, the conservative 
Tea Party's choice to, to, to run the show. And he's saying the numbers that have been given out by Sinkfield and his lobbyists, just they just, they just don't head up. So okay. that, that's what's happening right now. Probably a longer description than, than you were hoping for. No, I, that's that's uh, great. And basically, so, so its chances are limited, um, at least at this point in time, because the just just to the logistics of it. What about the fact that, you know, imposing a sales tax on a state where the two major metropolitan areas are so close in proximity to another to other states, Illinois and Kansas, um, where the residents, if the sales tax were just simply too high, wouldn't have a problem being able to go and buy those products at a significantly cheaper rate. I mean, what's the response when that's pointed out? I think um, I think that's a huge question. I can't really speak to what Thinkfield and his lackeys might say. I think they uh, generally assert that it's just a panacea. Um, this is all – this hasn't been tried before in a state like Missouri, so they don't have a good response on that. But you're exactly right. We're not like Colorado where the population is all centered around Denver. Yeah. Uh, I did an analysis a couple weeks ago, and it was a quick back-of-the-envelope kind of thing, but adding up the population in all the counties that border another state – that's around 70% of our state's population lives in a county that borders another state. Uh-huh. So it's not okay. just St. Louis and Kansas City. It's places like Joplin, Cape Girardeau, Hannibal, um, where I grew up. And I think that's where you're going to see that's where you're going to see some of this business uh, progressive coalition coming together to fight back on this. Because if you're in the Chamber of Commerce in Joplin or Cape or Hannibal or St. Joe, this is bad news. Like you're, you're never going to sell a washing machine again if you. Now, you know, the, if your price has jumped dramatically over what people can get across the across the river or across the border. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I think we're going to take a break in a, in a couple of minutes. But, um, Sean, it's been my impression. It seems like there have been kind of some experts weighing in a little bit on this mega sales tax proposal. And from what I've seen, it's been sort of overwhelmingly negative against the, the proposal. Mm-hmm. Does that seem accurate to you? And can you say a little bit more about who's sort of mentioned it in terms of like newspapers or various groups that's, that's very accurate and and that response has been almost unanimously uh negative the only so the the english post dispatch the kansas city star have both written about what a terrible idea it would be uh jim moody and his coalition which i mentioned um that's uh i mean and they're coming from a, a pro-business um free market republican perspective so so his analysis the Missouri Budget Project has done their own set of calculations. Um, the Center for Budget Priorities, so all of this, and that's a national organization. All of them have come to the conclusion, a similar conclusion, that this is going to cost, you know, somewhere around nine, ten percent sales tax to, to make this happen. And, and when you start talking honestly about the facts, people, it no longer seems like a great idea anymore. Sounds good. Um, okay, so we are going to, um, like we mentioned, uh, this is a new system, um, and we're going to try and experiment yeah. and, and cross <laughs> she, our fingers and hope she. that we act- accurately uh, uh, do the, the uh, half-hour promo. Uh, Sean, do you have um, some time to uh, after the break to talk a little more? I do, absolutely. Okay, okay great. Cool. So um, cross your fingers, and uh, <laughs> hopefully uh, the good news is uh, Kevin will edit all of this out if it, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it goes horribly wrong. So um, yeah. we'll, we'll see what happens. Okay, uh, okay so... 
That was uh, Student Activist. <laughs> we are Student Activist Hub uh, Radio here. Uh, a bit anticlimactic. Yes, <laughs> very anticlimactic, but at least we got it to, to work, I, I'm, I'm guessing. Um, and uh, so that was our station break under the new system, and we're excited about getting yeah. that, that working. It's, it's not an official radio program <laughs> yeah, unless you that. have a dramatic voice <laughs> yeah. like that. Uh, yeah, the, the UMSL yeah. student radio, that, that, that voice. Um, but uh, we are here, Adam and I, uh, with um, Sham from Fired Up Missouri, and we're talking about some of the local issues that are affecting Missourians with the new Republican legislator, strongly Republican legis- legislator, I will say. And we were just talking about the sales tax, the mega sales tax, I guess, um, that that sort of a pet project of, of uh, Rex Sinkfield. Um, one of the the uh, the other things that's that's going on um, that the legislator has to handle is redistricting. And I wanted to ask you, uh, Sean, about the fate. I guess you have two levels. You have the state level where you have to redistrict. Then you also have the federal congressional seats. Just mm-hmm. just going to the federal first, what, you know, what are the prospects for Missouri um, voters uh, with the new, with the latest, um, you know, sort of, data coming out of the Census Bureau and what's going to happen with the redistricting process, um, you know, and what should voters uh, um, and progressives be looking forward to? The redistricting process as it pertains to congressional seats, that all happens with the legislature. Um, it'll be through le- through a bill that's eventually signed by the governor, a bill that's vetoed and then overridden uh, by the legislature. So that's how that process will work. The State legislative maps will be drawn uh, by a commission, uh, which is made up of people from all congressional districts, and then that will most likely end up for judges because that commission is mostly designed to to result in deadlock just by the way that the law is written and it's structured. I think one of the things for progressives to be paying attention to are, um, one, I mean, I think the, the big question is how are the nine people who currently represent represent Missourians in Congress, their houses, how are their nine houses going to be drawn into eight different districts? Yeah. Um, and uh, there's lots of speculation about that and whether like Representative Clay, Representative Carnahan will suddenly live in the same district. I think that's, um, you know, that's a, that's a reality uh, that, that that doesn't seem too far-fetched. Um, the, the, the one thing that I think that progressive around the state should be paying attention to, though, as well, is are we going to have a system where people have real choices at the ballot? It's, it's not at all hard to imagine a world in which there's no functional choice at the ballot. You pretty much have the eight people that get picked by the legislature, and those are the eight we're going to have until they go to jail or they, or they get um, – they decide they want a promotion. And I think that's a tragedy, right? If I, I live in Columbia, and I, don't, I didn't even have a choice of any kind in the ninth district this fall. I've got Blaine Luke Meyer. There's not, there wasn't a Democrat on the ballot. Um, if you live in Springfield, you live in Kansas City, you know, conservative, progressive, moderate, whatever, you don't have a real choice. And I think that's, a, that's something that, that progressives uh, should be really paying attention to and, and, and asking for and, and demanding some, some competitive races and some real choices when it comes to the ballots. Yeah, and so uh, just so I, I'm clear on how it works, so if um, somehow uh, there was a, a – supermajority that was able to override a veto and they you know there was some uh redistricting plan that was proposed 
is that the sort of the end of the story? Like if they can, if Republicans can sort of override the veto, is that the end of it? Or are there still some restrictions on the way in which they have to do redistricting where there might be a lawsuit or something to, to challenge? Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I think that there's, there's, there's certainly a possibility of, of, of lawsuits. There are the voting rights act specifies, you know, the, you have to do some things to protect minorities and you have to um, draw maps that, um, that serve democracy in specific ways, and I can't profess to be experts on what those rules are, but but um, I don't see that as a likely. There's going to be lawsuits. You're right, but I, I don't know how likely it's going to be that, that things are going to get overturned through through legal action. Um, but the the key piece, and what you mentioned about the veto override and the supermajority, is that to get that, they're going to have to be three Democratic members of the House of Representatives who decide to vote for. Um, maps that the that the governor has overridden yeah. and, and it's so pre- pretty much universally reg- agreed that that would be considered high treason right yeah <laughs> <laughs> I'm, just, uh, I'm just joking you don't need to answer that you don't want to, but, uh. Uh, it would be remarkably disloyal to to the party um you know for for a member of either party to do that to their own party i i agree mm-hmm. um you know i guess when when it comes to redistricting po- process the one thing you have to look at is population changes and, and those types of demographics. You can't just partisanly come in and say, we're going to split this up. There has to be some of a reality to it. What, you know, what areas, what regions of the state uh, have changed demographically, have lost population or have gained population? You know, has, have we seen a lot of growth in, in the sort of Kansas city area as opposed to St. Louis and so on and so forth? I can't speak authoritatively to that. I wish I could. Um, I do know that the state grew significantly in population and was very close to being able to retain that, that ninth seat. Uh, so I know that there's been an overall increase, but I, I can't, I don't have any good info as to, to the relative increase or decrease. Okay. And with the redistricting law, is it, do districts have to retain some sort of geographic, um, you know, adherence to a region, or can you have one district that extends from, you know, Cape Dorado, you know, all the way to Kansas City? I think that there are. I think that there is case law. Um, there, there, are rule, there There's an expectation that there's some uh, continuity in the district, mm-hmm. but it doesn't have to be, you know, a, a uniform district in any any respect. Like so, the fourth district that Ike Skelton used to represent, Dickie Hartzler is there now. That has bits of Blue Springs, and it, it goes way down to the Ozarks. Uh, the okay. ninth district has bits of, you know, way up in northeast Missouri, um, but has Columbia and bits of St. Charles. The fifth district with Sam Graves has Kansas City plus extremely rural, um, very sparsely populated parts of Northwest Missouri. So, okay. um, so yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Well, uh, that's all very interesting. Um, and so the um, I think the main other um, super uh, scary legislation from my perspective was um, the suggestion of uh, making Missouri a right to work state, yep. or as some call it, right to work for less. Um, can you say a little bit about sort of what, um, what right to work actually is, um, what its impact would be and sort of where it stands, um, in the, in the sort of legislative process and, and how, I guess the main thing I'm interested in is how, how interested really are people in pursuing it? Is it, yeah, so go ahead. Yeah. So right now the, the law allows for, um, new employees if they, a new job and they're going to benefit from a contract that's been 
it's been bargained collectively by you know other workers in the union, they can't they become a part of that union. That's, the idea is that um, that that makes it so people don't preload. Um, so you can't come in and have a, a union negotiate a great salary or benefits package for you, um, and then you don't get a and then you say, yeah, I'm not paying any dues, I'm not going to participate, but I'll take all the, the spoils of your work. So that's how the law works right. right now. The proposal is to change that so that there can be no requirement to uh, to, to join um, a, a group of workers. Uh, I, as to your final question, I don't know what the appetite is at all for this. It sounds like uh, this kind of came out of left field or out of right field, <laughs> uh, more appropriately from Rob Mayer as, you know, the, the first, offering to the base a little bit of red meat after he was selected as the president pro tem over Kevin Engler, who was expected to, to, to rise to that position. Um, the, there was a coalition of corporate lobbyists and corporate interest groups that put out their wish list a few weeks ago of things that they said would be really great for businesses to make a whole lot more money, ways to get to workers and reduce worker protections. And this was on the wish list. They had six things. They had this little... Oh, this one page that called Fixed Six, and this isn't on there because I think it's pretty well re- accepted that this isn't going to—I mean, this isn't going to help workers. It's not going to help the state of things. Um, I don't. There, there's even bipartisan opposition to this. People have been yeah. vocal, and and so people like Jim Lemke, a guy who's crazy—I mean, who's just like a, a right-wing extremist on so many levels—is <laughs> openly saying. I've got union members. I'm not going to alienate them with this. It doesn't actually improve the state of things. So as to your final question, I just don't know what the appetite is. I wouldn't put anything past some of these guys, but um, at this point, it seems more like um, uh, a distraction than than a a top priority. But that doesn't mean that um, that, that, that there's not going to have to be a lot of work to to push back on the bad information and um, the, the bad ideas that are coming out there. And is this coming from, like, sort of Tea Party organized groups, or is it coming from Rex Sinkfield and, and that sort of libertarian strain? I mean, who's who threw it out of this right field? I mean, who who did that? To be honest, I think it's coming just from the legislators, and this is just an accepted part of their dogma and has been for a long time. Uh, and this was um, – I don't know that there is a huge organization or that Rex Sinkfield even cares about this. I, I I, I wish I knew. It, it was somewhat surprising when it kind of came up, and there still doesn't seem to be a huge coalition behind it, though. I'm sure groups like um, the NFIB, uh, the National Federation of Independent Businesses, they may care about it. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, I don't know. There's going to be national groups that come in and try and pay for this and you know, try and move things along if it, if it seems like it's going to go somewhere. But this seems like it came straight from Mayor and um, Senator Jason Crowell from Cape Dorado and, and folks like that. Okay. Um, oh, the, I just had one other led question about the legislative. There are two Democrats, you know, the, in the House at least, the Republicans are three votes shy from a from a veto-proof majority, and there are two Democrats who are sort of being pampered and groomed, you know, for the for the time where they're going to defect. Um, could you talk about that and and why that is? I understand two have committee chairs, chairmanships. Um, you know, and they have really nice office space. Um, could you could you sort of shed some more light on that situation? Yeah, there's been speculation in the uh, in the Capitol and around the Capitol about what sort of deals and wooing is going on. Um, there are 
several Democrats. I think there's three or four now who Democrats who have uh, who chair committees. So Representative oh, okay. Camilla Nasheed uh, yeah. chairs a committee. Uh, Representative Linda Black, uh, Linda Fisher is her previous name, but she's now Linda Black. She is chairing a committee. Uh, Representative Chris Kelly from Columbia is has a budget subcommittee or, or a section of the budget. And then uh, there was a brand new committee. Um, a renewable energy committee that was just created last week by the speaker, and that's um, uh, Representative Jason Holzman. So there's that, um, and I don't, I can't speak to what sort of deals might might have been cut to to have that, or if that's just some, you know, nice politicking by the speaker to to make it look like he's bipartisan while ramming his actual agenda through. Regarding the office spaces, uh, Representative uh, Nasheed and uh, Hubbard from St. Louis, they do have office space on the third floor of the Capitol that is traditionally not allocated to, to members of the minority party. Um, it sounds like way inside baseball stuff, I'm sure, to anyone outside the Capitol, but they legislators seem to really care about this kind of stuff. So um, so those are um, uh, those are the chairmanships and office things that, that you asked about. Sean, I, I, you, I'm sure you saw this, but um, so, you know, in various groups, there's people all over, like, sort of pulling on their hair wondering you know like if any democrats gonna flip blah 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 blah. and like i know some people were worried about nasheed but uh she did say on twitter that she thought um the fair tax was yeah. a bad idea which i thought was I did interesting. See that. that was so, a good idea mm-hmm. yeah so, that was a good sign for sure so. yeah and, I, and there's some speculation as to as to when um you know the, when these chits might be called in right so is it you know are they looking for uh so a bipartisan-ish vote on uh, the sales tax increase or on the redistricting override or, um, you know, what, what I, and I haven't spoken to any of these legislators at all to know um, what their specific interests are or, or anything like that. So, okay. Uh, what, what, um, just out of curiosity, uh, just brainstorming, what would happen to um, a Democrat that said, okay, uh, yeah, I'll cooperate with you if you pass this bill. And then they pass the bill, and then they just like say, "Oh, never mind." <laughs> like, you know, is there? I mean, I suppose it would just uh, ruin the the unspoken um, shenanigans of the Senate and, or something. Or what, what would you know? What would the consequences be for? You ask a very good question, <laughs> um, <laughs> and I wish I knew. I don't know the answer to that. Um, I, I honestly don't, and I honestly wish I did know um, what the answer to that, and I, and I just don't. Yeah, well, I mean, although I don't I, think you should from that le- from that legislator's perspective, it's so uh, the majority is so strong from the Republican side that it would be tough, uh, you know, that they would be in the doghouse um, for the for the rest of that, you know, Republican uh, dominance of the legislator. They could be sure of that. So, well, yeah, right. But they have to make the decision. Do I honor the deal that I cut with? people that are trying to stick it to my constituents or do I vote for my constituents? Yeah. Right? And so that's what, that's, those are the decisions that, that you're faced with when you, um, when you make, you know, deals that, that may not be in the best interest of, of the people you represent. Mm-hmm. Um, well that, I mean, that's a great, uh, overview, I think of yeah. a lot of the legislation. Um, so thank you so much for that. And then I, I, uh, did have one more question, um, uh, about uh, so there's speculation about um, who's going to be running against um, oh, yes. Claire McCaskill yeah. for Senate, and I noticed um, that sometimes you use the hashtag uh, Run Ed Run, and I was wondering uh, what what that might be about. Could you could you briefly explain uh, what you're saying there? 
Well, um, it's my personal belief that Ed Martin really enjoys media attention. And um, I also know that as far as statewide candidates go, that the man's got an enormous amount of baggage uh, with his behavior as the chief of staff for Matt Blunt, uh, the things he did during his congressional run, things he's done in between those two adventures. Uh, so I, <laughs> I, I would find it amusing for him to um, – that his candidacy, I think, it would be would be an exciting thing to watch. So that's what that's all about. But yeah, but yeah. So Ed Martin is one of the potential candidates to run for Senate, along with Representative Sam Graves from Northwest Missouri. Uh, Joanne Emerson has been teasing the idea a little bit as well, but that seems a whole lot less serious. Um, along with Ann Wagner, who yeah. was recently defeated for in her in her run to be chairman of the Republican National Committee. Yeah, I sort of to me the. The dream scenario, in my opinion, is uh, is either Ed Martin versus Sarah Steelman because I they both have a track record of being pretty brutal. I think in elections, and so that would be quite a slugfest. I think, and they, and they have plenty of things to pick on with each other too. <laughs> but I'd also be kind of interested. I don't I don't know. I think a Wagner Ed Martin Steelman race would also be um, kind of intriguing, uh, just in terms of how the the base would would split up and various allegiances might be. Yeah, that is interesting, it especially as Ed Martin, he pretends to be an outsider, but he's really not, right? I mean, I, yeah. I mean, he couldn't be any closer to the, to the, to the inside of the, of the, of the GOP. So part of me would be surprised if, if he and Wagner both went at it, but, um, you know, it's hard to protect Ed and his ego. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And right now, I mean, Sarah Steelman is the only one who's declared. Is she, she's kind of like your, your Sarah Palin clones that have been cropping up in, in Nevada and, and Delaware and now now here, is she seen as the front runner in any way? I think uh, Dave Catanese from Politico last week when when Talent announced officially that he wouldn't be out, he described her as the as the prohibitive front runner. Um, I don't know that I necessarily share that assessment though. She's certainly uh, she's she's a very serious candidate and she's. She's not in the paper very much right now because she's making calls, raising money. Okay. She announced early to to, to to try and solidify some of that front rider status. Um, everyone is compared to her. She's in every news story about the race. So um, she also had the endorsement of of Greg Hartley, who was Roy Blunt's former chief of staff, and now runs Cassidy Associates in Washington D.C., a very powerful lobbying firm. Okay. So she's got a little bit of insider cred to her outsider name right now too. Okay. Okay. Well, um, thanks a lot, Sean, yeah, for joining for us. Uh, it was a great, yeah. um, great uh, discussion of all the issues or, well, a lot of the issues that are, that are facing us. And uh, um, obviously it's going to be a pretty interesting year, especially in Missouri. I mean, in some ways, I think uh, the Missouri uh, legislature is more interesting than the national uh, <laughs> one, just because there's so many big, scary things uh, on the horizon. So, mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and I want to just repeat that I um, 100% endorse uh, the RFT's uh, <laughs> assessment of Fired Up Missouri as the best political blog because it's just it just blows my mind how uh, how many stories um, that you pick up that are really relevant and really interesting um, to people that um, seem to get passed over by the mainstream media. So thank you, uh, well, thank you for, for doing that. that. And um, just to and you are telling your listeners that you are a finalist in the in the. Best activist blog, right? <laughs> no, uh, of that regularly this, uh, 
Oh, well, I, I, I did, didn't, but I'm glad you got my that. check before, yeah. um, before we started. So, <laughs> uh, but yeah, thank you. So, and, uh, so, uh, just to remind us, it's, um, www.firedupmissouri.com is where we can find the blog. Yep. That's it. Okay. Excellent. Well, yeah. thanks a lot, Sean. And, and, uh, make sure to like it on Facebook and follow it on Twitter as well. So thank you, Sean. Um, and, uh, I'll, I'll be in so touch. Much for yeah. Yeah. Thanks for coming on. Okay. Good night. night. Um, take, uh, we are going to take, uh, another quick break, another experiment in, um, <laughs> student radio and, uh, we will be back. Kevin and I will be back to talk a little bit about the national, um, yeah. Scene, yeah. political sounds scene. Good. So. Okay, yeah, we are back. Um, this is uh, Student Activist Hub Radio, um, and uh, I'm with my co-host, uh, Adam, and we're just going to talk about some national politics briefly. I'm not sure about that opening. I'm guessing it's coming from the speakers, but I don't hear it on my headphones. Oh, really? Oh. Yeah. I'm, but, you know, I, <laughs> online, it, I, think, so. I guess, you, oh, okay, okay, then it's my headphones fault. Okay, that's great. Do Never mind, I was, I was going to say, okay, then that's great. We've got it down pat. <laughs> um, but... So, yeah, the national political scene, um, of course, Claire McCaskill um, is a part of the, the uh, number of, of Democratic senators who political pundits claim are vulnerable to uh, falling to uh, Republican challengers in 2012 uh, and thereby handing Republicans a Senate. Um, in the Senate, there was a uh, change of the rules, which got very little attention to Washington, but it's something that a lot of pro- progressives have been pushing, and that's to try to reform the filibuster, and that sort of fizzled out. Um, and I, I believe Claire McCaskill was involved in the, the secret holds. Yeah, yeah she, um, I mean, she, I think, has been, she was the senator who, from the beginning, was pushing to end secret holds. So there's some, like, arcane, or there was some arcane mm-hmm. rule in the Senate where, I don't know exactly how it works, but a senator could like block legislation from being voted on without even um, anyone knowing who exactly was doing it. It was sort of anonymously. And so, you know, obviously that's a a very easy way to completely slow down and gum up the legislative process and block things, um, you know, absurdly without without anyone even knowing who to hold accountable. And uh, McCaskill was really good about going around to different senators and getting them to pledge you know, to not, to, not to, to vote against it. Um, and so that did pass. So I think that, I thought that was a pretty good, I mean, I would have definitely liked to have seen filibuster reform. Cause I, I think the way that, I mean, from the last two years, we saw We've that seen it. it was ridiculous and, how much stuff was held up, even with 59 Democrats out of a hundred yeah. and, and control of the house, we couldn't get things passed that we should have. Um, and, and, you know, the interesting thing about the agreement that came out, is there was a proposal on the table to change the Senate rules by using what's called the constitutional option, which is basically the majority of senators can just change the rules, bypassing the filibuster and the sort of 
two-thirds requirement that is normally required to change the rules in the middle of a Senate session. And basically, um, there is this, this was actually tried by, in some other form, the Republicans tried to use it in Bill Frist, under Bill Frist, back under George W. Bush, to get through George Bush's um, judicial nominees, uh, his, his, his Supreme Court judges, his judges. The Democrats threatened to filibuster. The Republicans said, no, uh-uh, that's not going to happen. We're going to get rid of the filibuster. And it came to a head, and, and it was finally compromised, and they preserved the filibuster, but they used this, this constitutional option. Now, in the present... Uh, Harry Reid, who's the Senate Majority Leader for the Democrats, and Mitch McConnell, who's the Minority Leader on the Republican side, have what's called have uh, some sort of gentleman's agreement where, in this session of Congress and in the next session of Congress, neither side will try to use this constitutional option, which is interesting to me because the Republicans were saying from the start that oh well this is illegal and this is an absurd this is you know they totally flip flopped from the position back in two thousand you know four two thousand five. And now they're saying it's illegal. Uh, and um, the, you know, they've, they've moved from that to, to sort of tacitly recognize that it could be used because they're saying in the next session of Congress where political analysts think that, that the Republicans have a, have a good chance of winning back the Senate. And so, you know, it, that has an interesting ramifications in itself. Um, but, you know, it's it to me, it was disappointing. And I think a lot of progressives were disappointed generally that the Democrats didn't um, try to uh, alter the filibuster, uh, you know, because it just had burned them so often. You know, it, it had, you know, blocked the public option, although there's a question of whether or not, you know, Democrats would have, you know, many Democrats would have liked to see that enacted. But it certainly made things like repealing don't ask, don't tell more difficult. Obama has been very, you know, it's been very hard for him to confirm a lot of you know, basic people uh, who are needed to run the government, deputy members of, of cabinet, you know, positions, your White House uh, advisors, you know, they really have had a hard time doing a lot of things because the Republicans have just tried to gum up the system. They basically said, we're just going to make life uh, difficult. And it's too easy to do that in the Senate. It's in order to filibuster, essentially, all you need to do is say, I object. And then you leave the floor of the Senate and if there's not 60 vote senators who say we overrule that objection, you can hold the Senate as opposed to, you know, the way that most Americans think of it, the way that, you know, they think of it when Mr. Smith goes to, you know, uh, you know, goes to Washington and, and uh, you know, goes and, and does this filibuster, um, you know, it's not like that. You know, a senator doesn't have to speak on the floor of the Senate at all. And many of them don't, uh, you know, and so. um it it to me it's something that that should have ch- changed and, and in the long run I know a lot of Democrats are saying oh well when the Republicans get into power they will you know we will we'll thank that Harry Reid uh, for agreeing to this now you know to me that just seems to be a serious miscalculation I mean I would like for anyone who's saying that to find me the Republican who when confronted with a filibuster in the face of an act that would make abortion illegal or confirm a Supreme Court justice who promises to make abortion illegal. You know, find me the, the Republican senator who will then say, oh, yeah, the filibuster is all right. Find me the Republican senator when when confronted with the filibuster um, 
against you know a dramatic decrease in corporate taxes who would come back and say, oh, yeah, I, yeah, let's have the filibuster. If there's an option to remove it, those Republicans will remove it. Even if, you know, even if they personally say, oh, I don't like it, they'll face a primary challenge. They'll get all sorts of pressure from the business lobby, from pro-life groups, um, from their base if they don't pursue, pursue those legislative initiatives. So for Democrats to think that by somehow agreeing to keep the filibuster and not use the constitutional option, they're setting a precedent that Republicans will follow. Just just shows either they're being very cynical and thinking that the base isn't watching, or they're they just haven't they don't know, you know, they just seriously miscalculated the way that the Republican Party functions and the way that it operates. Yeah, and that's uh nothing new for the past two years, <laughs> but uh it always is a little Shocking to see how slowly they learn. But um, I did want to say, though, I mean, I even though I would like to have seen filibuster uh, reform, it's not a super big deal at the current moment, I think, yeah, because we're, moment, we're yeah. not going to we're not going to lose it. But I but I do want to, you know, take time to say that I think Claire McCaskill does a pretty good job in a really tough state of Missouri of finding issues that that people can agree on, like you know, getting rid of this ridiculous whole, you know, secret, secret holes. Yeah. And also, um, you know, she was on NPR either last week or two weeks ago talking about um, the fact that the military wasn't funding um, therapy for people who had brain trauma. Okay. You know, and she was like the only person speaking up about this issue, which I think, you know, my guess is that a huge percentage of Americans yeah. would say, well, if you serve in the military, you should be getting the same treatment that, um, you know, a civilian would get or yeah. a congressperson would get. Um, and, you know, the Department of Defense wasn't authorizing that. So she does she does do a pretty good job of sort of navigating these rough yeah. um, terrain, even if she um, even if she sort of uh, has to sigh or, you know, throws more raw meat to the Republicans than <laughs> I would like. Um, but 